Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. I'm glad to be here, whether you're here in the sanctuary or you're joining us from the commons or online this morning. Uh, Welcome to First Baptist, and I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to share these scriptures with you this morning. Um, If I'm honest, this message has been really tough for me to write. Revelation's not a book of the Bible that I generally find myself in on a regular basis. So it's been a bit of a learning process. There's a bit of a learning curve to um, Revelation. And and I have to say that I have an an imperfect understanding of this passage, probably just like anybody else does, right? As much as we'd like to think we we know everything and, and have it all in line, likely when we get to heaven someday and we ask God, hey, did, did we have that part right? He's like, well, maybe. You're close. Um, so, you know, I've, I've never been one to take an amillennial or premillennial, postmillennial stance, partially just because I, to be honest with you, until I joined First Baptist Church, didn't know the difference. I just knew there was a book of Revelation, and it had some really great stuff in chapters 1 through 4, and some really good stuff in 21 and 22, and I kind of stayed away from the stuff in the middle because I didn't know what to think of it. Anybody else who was there before this series started? All right. I'm not, good to know I'm not alone. And the thing that sometimes is scary about this book of the Bible is it can cause division. I think Chad touched on that last week. A couple of the different pastors whose messages I watched in preparation for this said the same thing, that this book particularly has the opportunity or the, the potential to divide the church, you know, church universal, churches within themselves. And I just want to be really intentional to approach this topic this morning with a lot of grace and a lot of humility, right? Because that's... We're, we're going to learn from each other. We're going to learn together. And, um, yeah, let's, let's just start digging into it. A lot of the world's greatest scholars have disagreed on this stuff. Um, and quite a few of those same guys have changed their mind on what they thought they thought about it as time went on. Um, so I certainly don't want to claim to have all of those answers. I mean, I think sometimes when we pretend to know more than what we do, or we project more than what we actually know, we're kind of putting ourselves on shaky ground, right? So I'm not going to do that this morning. If there's things that I'm unsure about, I'm not going to go there because that's not beneficial to me and it's not beneficial to you for me to make conjecture about things I'm not positive about. So as we jump in, my aim this morning is to just dig into the meaning behind the concepts in this passage. Right, whether they're taken literally or whether they're taken more symbolically. And it's my prayer this morning that the Holy Spirit will lead us as we walk through this passage, that he would open our eyes to the things that are both said and unsaid, um, that the things that are important to becoming more committed disciples um, of Christ and to drawing more people to Christ, that those things would become apparent because at the end of the day, isn't that really what it's about anyways? Right? Becoming more committed followers of Christ and reaching out to more and more people. 
you know, all of the finer details are finer details, and they're great, and sometimes they really illuminate a passage and help us to understand something new about ourselves. But when you come back to what it's all about, it's about becoming more committed followers of Christ and drawing more people to himself. So uh, let's pray as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for our time this morning, our time together. We ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see your work in creation, to see your glory on display in the world that we live in. We ask that you would open our ears to hear your word this morning. God, not my word, but your word spoken through me. Lord, I pray that anything that I say this morning that may not be accurate would fall on deaf ears and that you would use me despite my imperfections. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive your words and strengthen our resolve to apply them to our lives. In Christ's name, all the people said, amen. amen. So let's, let's jump right into that scripture. We're going to read it all the way through Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Revelation 20, 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a couple of pieces to this puzzle that we need to understand in order to fully grasp what, what John is, has seen, what, what God is trying to say to us. And I tend to, to translate this as a literal thousand-year period, just like what Chad has talked about the last couple of weeks. As I've read, that's where I tend to land, that this is a literal thousand-year period, or at least it's a very distinct period of time that Satan is bound up. Maybe that, that length of time isn't that important, but the part that is important is that Satan is bound for a very specific period of time. Um, and I want to just paint this picture for you this morning of that millennial period a little bit. During this millennial period when Satan is bound, the earth will be under Christ's perfect reign. It'll be completely separate from Satan's influence. Right? That doesn't mean that, that man's heart is incorruptible, but it does mean that those environmental factors, health factors, right, the things that are generally beyond our control, all those elements for that thousand years are going to be gone because Christ is going to be here and Christ is going to be in control. It's going to be his sovereign reign. And Satan, Satan's impact, Satan's temptation, he's bound up. He doesn't have a grip. He doesn't have a hold on the earth for that thousand years. And that's going to be partially because at that point, the only people alive when you enter that millennial period are Christ's devoted followers. And as that time goes, there'll be children born, just like there are now. There'll be probably a lot of children born. There will be no sickness. There'll be no disease. There'll be no crime, no hate. And Christ's followers will experience what it means to experience tr true peace, 
true joy, true love. Right, the, the weather is going to be perfect in my mind. That means it's 70 degrees and partly sunny with a light breeze. Right? Because if you hadn't noticed, I'm pretty fair-skinned, so when it's full sun, I'm getting burnt no matter what I do. So partly sunny, 70 degrees, light breeze. And that land's going to produce as it's meant to. It's going to be fruitful. It's going to multiply. When you think about a, perf- a picture-perfect world, that's what it's going to be for that thousand years, only better because it'll be Christ's perfect world and not our perfect world. And then as we read in verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison. And this is where one of those major questions came up for me while I was preaching. I thought, why? Why does Satan need to be released? Everything's been great for a thousand years. It's been perfect. Why, after a thousand years of awesome, would God release Satan one final time? Why, after a thousand years of perfection and abundance, would God release Satan to wreak havoc one more time? Right? Isn't, isn't the thousands of years of Satan's presence that we've already dealt with and struggled through, isn't that enough? Well, no, unfortunately. Apparently not. If you look around, there are still a lot of people who don't believe in Christ. There's still a lot of people who, who believe that sin and its effects are nothing more than environmental factors, that they're things beyond our control, that to some degree sin is, is beyond our control. It's, it's nothing, there's nothing we can do about it. But Satan has to be released one final time for at least two reasons. At least two reasons that I was able to find. First, there's going to be a lot of children born during that thousand-year reign. Right? Living in a world so right and so perfect, I'd imagine there's going to be a lot of children born. Without sickness and disease, life is going to be long. So all the people who enter this millennial period, they're going to be followers of Christ. But not everyone born during that millennial period will choose to follow Christ. During that period, Christ's rule is going to be sovereign. One pastor that I, I listened to this, this last week said, you've never seen a dictator until you've seen Christ during the millennial reign. And I thought, that rubs me the wrong way a little bit. That doesn't, that doesn't, something about that doesn't feel right. And then I thought, well, if my life aligns perfectly with God's will, it's not going to feel like a dictatorship. It's just going to be part of life together. But not everybody's going to agree with that. So part of the purpose for Satan's return will be exposing those who have submitted to Christ's will only in appearance. Only in appearance. Not in true faith. Which brings us to the second reason. Satan's return will expose men's depravity. For all of history, we've been able to make excuses for our sin and what makes us the way that we are. We've been able to say, I did this or that because somebody wronged me. I've got an anger problem because people are a pain in the neck. You know, whatever it might be, we've made excuses for our sin. And this is going to prove once and for all that even after living in a perfect world, for a thousand years, or whatever that time period is going to be, man will still be tempted to walk away from Christ. Even after living in perfection, completely separated from sin, we are still tempted to walk away from Christ. 
We can have an outward appearance of belonging to Christ, but without grace, without the grace of God, without true faith, right, true conversion, submission to Christ's will, we ultimately belong to Satan. Only in accepting that we're sinners, only in accepting that we're not God, and that his will is perfect, not ours, only in that world can salvation exist. Romans 5 through 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It would be easy to say, why did God create people who could deny him? Why would, why would God create a, a person who can, who can say no, who can walk away? But that wouldn't represent God's character, would it? It wouldn't, it wouldn't represent God's character to create people who are forced in a specific box. While he is sovereign and while he is just, he's also incredibly benevolent and generous. So when he created humanity, he gave us the ability to have this free will, even if that meant never actually submitting to his will. And even during the, the millennial reign, there will be, still be those who turn from Christ as soon as they're presented is something that they think or something that they perceive is better. So that's one thing that we need to understand is the millennial reign. What does that look like? The second thing is Satan. We have to have an understanding or an idea at least of what Satan, who Satan is and what he's like. We need to understand that, especially to understand this passage. Right? Satan is the great deceiver of the world. Left to his own devices, man might, might, highly unlikely, but might be okay. But as soon as Satan enters the picture, he offers up all sorts of things that appear more appealing than God's world, than God's will. But it's all just a mirage, right? It's all a fake. It's a picture that soon fades away into death and despair and destruction and ultimately separation from Christ. He's the constant adversary of God's people. All through history, this has been true over and over again. In just the first, in just the first 11 chapters or so of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve tempted by Satan. We see Cain kill Abel. We see the sons of God marry the daughters of men, which results in the flood. We see after the flood, Noah gets drunk and sleeps with his daughter, the Tower of Babel, all because of, of Satan's temptation and Satan's influence. These things, a lot of those things, all those things really were his idea. There are temptations that Satan planted in front of man and they chose because they thought it was better. It appeared to be better than God's way. And Satan's been trying to build an army since he was cast out of heaven because he's delusional. That's the thing about Satan. Is Satan is convinced that if he can mass a large enough army, if he can gain enough power 
that he can overcome and overwhelm God. And the truth is, we all know this, that's just not going to happen. But he's not going to stop at anything to grow that army. That means he's going to pursue each and every one of us just as hard as he can. He's going to put barriers in our way. He's going to tempt us. He's going to do what he can to draw us away from Christ, to continue to put more and more ranks into his army. And as we continue to move through this passage, verses 8 and 9, they say, And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Both the phrase, the four corners of the earth, and the phrase, like the sand of the sea, indicate that this army is going to be a numberless multitude. It's going to be overwhelming. Right? I've, I've been on a Lord of the Rings kick lately. Anybody else watch the Lord of the Rings movie? Okay, we got a few. We got a few. There's this one scene. It's the Battle of, of Helm's Deep. If you get a chance to at least check out that, that part of the movie, go ahead and do that for me later because you'll understand what I'm picturing in my mind right now. But the heroes of the story are all behind this massive fortress. They've, they've retreated. They're in this fortress, and they're looking out over this coming army. And it's just massive. It's absolutely huge, and it's dark, and it begins to rain, and it's thunder and lightning. And every time the lightning flashes, it's like you can see more and more ranks of the army. And as I'm reading this passage, that's what comes to mind. That there's just this overwhelming force as far as the eye can see coming from all directions, and God's people are fully surrounded, fully encompassed. And one of the things that struck me as I was writing this week is that we'll likely, most likely see people we know. The people who are there for the millennial reign, if we happen to be here for the millennial reign, we will more than likely see people lined up in Satan's ranks who we recognize. I had never thought about that until this week. There'll be people who refuse to give their lives to Christ, which will likely include some of our friends, our family, our neighbors, people who we've seen at the grocery store. And if that's not a reminder of the work that we have to do as Christians, I don't know what is. And this battle is going to seem like a complete loss when it starts. Can you imagine? It's just a small remnant of God's faithful and true Christians fully surrounded on all sides. It seems like a complete loss when it starts. That phrase, the camp of saints, indicates that the people of God will be in, in front of the city. They'll be in a defensive posture. Like, bring it on, Satan. We don't know how this is going to end. Well, we know how it's going to end because God's sovereign, but I don't know how he's going to come through. All is going to seem lost. But then, verse 9 continues, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is one of those verses that tends to divide people. This is one of those verses that tends to get pretty strongly debated, is this literal fire from heaven or is this a figurative 
fire? Is this a you know, swift and utter destruction all around the world, or is this happening in one specific place? Is it a literal city in one geographic location, or is, it, or is it the idea of God's people being a minority spread all over? And while I think it would be really cool to know exactly what it means and know exactly what the picture that John had in his mind was, I'm not sure that knowing that's all, all that important. The appearance of the events are something that will be debatable until the events themselves happen, right? How it happens, what those armies look like, what Satan's face looks like, all of that's going to be debatable until it happens. But the truth of what happens, the truth that it's going to happen, that's going to remain no matter what. Whether it happens in one location or it happens all around the world, the judgment will be complete and it will be final. It doesn't matter how it happens, but that part is true no matter how it happens. This judgment will be complete and it will be final. And that's what this passage is communicating. After Satan is bound and then released, the conclusion of this battle will be the end of what we know of the earth. It will be the end of those who choose to not accept Christ, and it will be the end of Satan himself. It's going to be the end of a lot of things. Some things that we've perceived to be great things and some things that we've understood to be terrible things, but it's going to be an end. And while the torment of hell will be bad, right? that's what we talk about or this passage really hits on, is that Satan and the beast and the false prophet are going to be thrown in the lake of fire and all of those people who chose to align with him are going to be consumed. While the torment of hell would be bad, the ultimate punishment is separation from God. This passage is a little scary, if I'm honest. Satan is a real person. Hell is a real place. And eternity is eternity. It's forever. There's no second guessing that. But those things aren't the worst of it. The worst of it, separation from God, is the worst of it. As human beings, we've been created in the image of God, right? The Imago Dei. And therefore, there's a certain longing that we have in all of us to be with God and to be like God. We are created with that desire. And some will recognize what that longing is, where it's coming from. We'll understand that it's God that's pulling us and drawing us. We'll understand that without God, the reason that we have this constant longing, we can't seem to grasp what it is that's missing. Some of us are going to figure out that, that it's God, that longing. And some won't. Others will live a life of rebellion and would rather seek instant gratification in all the different things that you can imagine seeking instant gratification in. And then at the end, we'll experience eternal separation from Christ. So let me recap this before we get into the how then shall we live part. Satan is bound for the millennium. Right? Whether we think that that millennium is happening right now or it's going to happen in the future, Satan is bound and he will be loosed again. Right? It's going to get worse before it gets better. Satan's going to expose that men 
even when given the most perfect of conditions, will still choose Satan and the world over Christ. That's going to happen. There will be a final battle in which Christians of the world seem overwhelmed, but we're never even going to have to physically enter that battle. That was one of the things that struck me about that is God sends fire before we even have to get our hands dirty. He's going to take care of it for us. And it's going to be final. It's going to be the last chance to accept Christ's perfect will. And it's going to be Satan's final stand. So how then shall we live? If there's going to be disagreement, like I said, or some of the specifics between the amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial views. And maybe you're like me, and before now you've really never given those specific viewpoints a whole lot of thought. And maybe you're not ready to say definitively where you are on one of those yet. And that's totally fine, right? I think that's okay. How we anticipate events to happen is going to differ from one another, and more than likely it's going to differ from how they actually happen, right? But whether they're viewed symbolically or literal, the truth remains the same. The end result, the conclusion remains the same. And they should still call us to the same urgency of life transformation, right? To becoming more and more like Christ. What is not okay is to let those differences that we have divide us. David Platt, in one of the videos I was watching, said, that division is one of the greatest sins we could let enter our churches. And that might seem like a strong term to call that division sin, but that's exactly what it is. So let's not, let's not go there, right? Let's not do that. Instead, let's let each other's perspectives enrich the way that we see and view God. To see the, the good and the merit in each other's viewpoints. So what does it look like to live with this end in mind? Have you ever read a book after finding out the conclusion? Or maybe it was like, maybe it's your favorite book and you've read it a dozen times. You know, it's that book that when you open it, the pages fall out. When you know the way that a book finishes it, it completely changes the way that you read it, right? Once you've read it the first time, you know how the book ends, and all of a sudden you start picking up on these little pieces that you've never seen before. It's the same when you watch a movie. Now all of the events can be seen from a a perspective of wonder and and curiosity and just how how does this one little piece contribute to the end of the story? Instead of wondering who wins and loses and how the hero can possibly overcome all the barriers, now you can see the intricacies in everything that's happening and how all those pieces form together. It's that same way in life. With the end in mind, we can see how all the pieces of our life are beginning to come together to strengthen our faith in Christ and how they're going to contribute to the end of that story. Good moments make obvious contributions to the hero's story. Good moments show us obvious ways to grow and obvious ways that God is working in our lives. And the bad moments, they sometimes present us with these barriers that give us an opportunity to pose the question, how will we overcome? How are we going to overcome this? Barriers force us beyond our comfort zone. 
They force us out into the unknown. They provide opportunities to lean into God in a different way and draw closer to him in ways that we never knew existed, never knew were possible. They form us more and more and more into the image of God as we seek his will despite the hardships that we're facing. And when we do this, knowing that the final battle ends in victory, it becomes much easier. It doesn't make life easy, but it makes it easier to continue forward, right? So first, this passage hopefully empowers us to see life through a new lens so that we can be encouraged in our faith. Hopefully, it will help us to see life from a perspective where we can ask, how does good prevail as opposed to will good prevail? It's a slight, but it's an important difference. Second, we need to realize that Satan is the great deceiver. I think we often think of Satan as, as the bad guy. We picture Satan with this sinister, evil appearance where we would almost be repulsed, right? Like I think about that in different movies where they portray Satan as this, this character he would want to stay away from. But I don't think that's likely what Satan's going to look like at all. I think it's likely that he embodies everything our fallen nature desires. I think it's likely that he'll probably be attractive. He'll be powerful. He'll appear to be loving and gracious. He'll be great with words. He'll seem like one of those good guys, you know? What he offers will be enticing, and it will play on all of the things that we often think we want. So we need to have our guard up. We have to learn how to protect ourselves. We need to be diligent and watchful. We need to, to guard ourselves against him and his temptations. We need to remain in God's word and prayer consistently so that we can identify the great deceiver. The only way to know the difference between an authentic piece of art and a forgery is to study them, right? Anybody used to watch the Antiques Roadshow? <laughs> you're like, oh, I got the best thing. Yes, it's going to be worth so much money. And then you bring it, and they're like, oh, it's a forgery. And it's something about the brush strokes or something about the canvas. Like, that's not something I would know because I don't study art. Are we going to know who Satan is when he appears in front of us because we've studied what God's word says to us? Or are we going to go on thinking that he's the real deal when really he's the forgery? It's only by remaining in the word and in prayer that we can differentiate what reflects the character of God and what doesn't. And last, we're often pretty quick to judge the Israelites in the Old Testament and wonder how could they possibly turn from God so quickly? Who's thought that before when they get out of Egypt and like, you guys have been in slavery and you're already complaining. Manna comes down, they complain. Quail comes down, they complain. They do nothing right. And we're pretty quick to judge them. Right? How could they experience all of those things? The manna, the exodus, water pouring from a rock, the plagues, the time of the judges down and down the road, the wealth of David and Solomon. How can they experience all of those things and still so easily walk away from God's plan, his commandments? Revelation specifically right here, indicates that that tendency hasn't changed at all. 
That tendency within us has not changed at all, which means that some of us are in denial about our ability to sin and to disappoint Christ. When we're quick to judge the Israelites and think, how could they do that? We're probably a little bit in denial about how quick we might be to do the same things. If after the millennium, if after a thousand years or a really long period of perfection, people are still able to walk away from God, and not only to walk away from Christ, but join Satan in battle, if we think we're immune to or we're above walking away, then we're sorely mistaken. We are very easily deceived people. Just like the Israelites, it would be really easy to be lulled into a false sense of security and to grow complacent in our faith. The problem is that when we're complacent over time, our fallen nature begins to kick in. It kicks in more and more, and we walk further and further from God. We need to live with an awareness of our sin. We need to live with an awareness of our human depravity. It's a good thing to understand that we're not perfect. It's a good thing to understand where sin is present in our lives. And it's good to be humble enough to know that we're going to make mistakes. Because without those things, we'll be unable to confess our sin. We'll be unable to repent and to be saved. Because if we can't acknowledge that we have those things, how can we confess them and how can we repent? We're often quick to acknowledge that sin exists, but slow to acknowledge that it exists in me. It's easy to say sin exists in the world. Sin is tainting the world, but it's difficult to say sin exists in me. Sin is tainting me. I need to become more like Christ. And when that happens, it begins to make us apathetic. As we close this morning, let me wrap up with this. And if you don't take anything else away from the message this morning, take this away. God is so great and so good that he can allow evil, even Satan himself, to be loose on the earth without any threat whatsoever to his goodness or his greatness. Let that sink in for a minute. Because the first time I read it, I kind of just read past it. Is it one of the commentaries I read? God is so great and so good that he can allow evil, even Satan himself, to be loose on the earth without any threat whatsoever to his greatness and his goodness. Satan can throw everything that he's got in the kitchen sink at God's plans, and he's not going to disrupt them. He's never going to overwhelm God's power. And the power of God lives within us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The power that we need to overcome the world, the power that we need to overcome Satan and his grasp, to defeat that grasp that he has on our lives, lives within us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That, that so great and that so good power that's within God is within each and every one of us. Um, as we close this morning, we're going to have uh, Steve come up and, and pray. I'm drumming in the comments, so... I've got to make the transition here, so thanks. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we've heard your word this morning uh, as your, your messenger gave it to us. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you that you are a good God, 
that you have a plan for our future. I thank you, Father, that your will will be, will be uh, completed, that man will be redeemed. Uh, Father, I thank you that you have given us the opportunity to know you in a real and intimate way. I pray that this morning something would have been said, something would have been uh, said that touches our hearts, uh, causes us to think in a new and a fresh way about you. And so, I, Father, I just pray that your blessings might be upon this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen.